0: May the Lord bless our reading from his holy and his inerrant word. And let's pray for his blessing upon him. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity now to open your word. And we pray, Father, that you will bless the preaching of your word to your people. Lord, we thank you for the the purity, uh, for the wisdom for the understanding that the word gives. And Lord, we pray that uh, we would hear it with glad and uh, willing hearts and that, Father, you would bring us into subjection to your word with joy. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have missed it, but on the 13th of this month, a small group gathered on what is traditionally believed to be Mount Sinai over in Egypt. They held a ceremony in which they smashed two tablets on the ground, and they did it to show their dissatisfaction with the way environmental issues are being handled in our world today. One of the tablets represented the Ten Principles or Commandments of Climate Repentance. Uh, we look down to Sharm el-Sheikh, the location of the last week's climate summit, and we are not satisfied, Abramowitz said as he smashed the tablets on the ground. should mention that Mr. Abramowitz is the CEO of a renewable energy company, as he did that. I don't want you to focus on the politics of this, however. I don't want you to focus on the social or economic significance of this act at all this morning. Instead, I want you to reflect on the spiritual ignorance and human arrogance that it exhibits. First, there's no certain evidence that this is Mount Sinai at all. It's uh, merely a tradition. Uh, it only holds that dist- its distinction traditionally. So the significance of the location is immaterial. Secondly, there is absolutely no correlation between ten man-invented climate principles and God's eternal and holy law. There's no comparison between the two. To attempt to put them somehow on the same footing, even symbolically, is utter foolishness, beloved, and is tantamount to blasphemy. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Nothing that man has done can provide those blessings in and of itself, unless it conforms with the word of God itself. And thirdly, the offense of violating their climate initiatives really has no consequences beyond perhaps Impacting the bottom line of Mr. Abramowitz's sustainable energy company. But the violation of God's law is truly sin. And its consequences are awful and eternal. In Isaiah chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, we read, The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies denied under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws. Violated the statutes. Broken the everlasting covenant. Not the laws of men. Not the laws of climate change. But the law of the one true and living God. And that's why the earth languishes. Because of its violation of God's word and law. Fourthly. Had they been around on the day that Moses threw down the stone tablets of God, they would have been in abject fear. They would not and could not go to the top of that mountain. They couldn't do so and live. They would have trembled before the holy manifestation of God's presence on that holy mountain. Again, in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 18, we're told, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Didn't boldly march up to the top of the mountain and make some statement about themselves. They were afraid to go anywhere near it. These men and women went through their little ritual. They broke their thin plaster tablets, and there was no fire that fell from heaven. The earth didn't even vibrate perceptibly, and there was no impact whatsoever. It was all posturing and bravado. Thomas Manton warned, When you are under the power of a passion, you have just cause to suspect all your apprehensions. You are apt to mistake others and to mistake your own spirits. Passion is blind and cannot judge. It is furious and hath no leisure to debate and consider. And so it does foolish things. Worst of all, beloved, this act could only serve to diminish God and his word. By trying to put something like 10 principles of climate change on the same level as the 10 commandments that can only diminish God and his word. Now, last time that uh, I was with you and we were preaching from this passage two weeks ago, we had two great mountains before us standing before our minds and our hearts. The two great mountains spoken of here in Hebrews chapter 12. First, there is Mount Sinai, that mountain that blazed with fire and darkness and gloom and was shaken by a tempest. God revealing himself by his holy law with his awesome righteousness and justice on display in a physical manifestation of his presence on the crown of that mountain. And as we said then, men and women, boys and girls, had to look beyond all of that that, that thundering that lightning that noise that, that all that fearful uh, presence of god for the steadfast love and mercy of the lord to discover any peace they had to believe according to the promise of god that despite all the terror of the law that he would bring them the redemption that he promised This was the case under the old dispensation or covenant or under the Old Testament. But now, Hebrews 12 says, since we have moved into the age of grace, we're brought to another mount, to Mount Zion. You see it here in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion The grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ is on full display in this new mountain, on this new mountain. In the Old Testament, the law and its judgment are in the foreground. And the law, since the fall of man, offers no hope. It didn't then, and it doesn't now. If if it's anyone's intention to live and die by the law, then understand that you have to join those who stood before Sinai on that awful day and listen to that law thunder in your ears. Because that's where you want to stand. You want to be there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And you want that fearful display of God's awful judgment standing over you. But the blood of Abel speaks to us from that mountain. And what does it say? Well, it cried out against Cain. It identified Cain as a violator of the law. When Cain tried to pretend innocence, the law, and the Lord would have none of it. You remember that exchange? It's in Genesis 4, verses 9 through 10. The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And Cain tries to claim innocence. And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know. I I don't know where he is. I don't know what's happened. And the Lord said to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. In other words, the voice of your brother's blood is telling me that you are a violator of the law because you are a murderer. And that testimony speaks to you and speaks to me and tells me that you are a sinner to be condemned. Any appeal to virtue or innocence under the law will be met with the evidence of its violation and a declaration of its guilt. If a man or a woman or a child or a boy or a girl hopes to stand under the law before God, that law is going to condemn you because you're going to say, I'm innocent, and it's going to say, what about this? What about that? And you will be judged by that law and condemned. Both God's truth and your own conscience will condemn you. Paul warned the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5 and verses 4 and 5. He said, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. But you've fallen away from it. You're now under the law. Because you have rejected Christ. In the days of Christ's coming, however, mercy and grace, if they were sought at all, were to be found in the forefront. But in those days, they were to be found in the background. By that I mean men and women had to look beyond the terrors of the law and put their faith in God's mercy. But now, rather than having the picture of that mountain with the the thunder and the lightning and the trembling before you, now in this age, the Lord Jesus Christ upon his cross is before us. And what we see is not the mountain threatening us with those terrors, but we have Christ bearing those terrors on the cross for our sake. And so the mercy and the love of God is in the forefront. The law and its terrors are still there, but in front of it is this message of love and mercy, In front of it is this message of forgiveness and redemption through Christ and through his sacrifice on the cross at Calvary. In 1 John 4, 9, John writes, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son to the world so that we might live through him. And when we see him dying our death, then we know that we have the hope and the promise of life. Now, having come to such a wonderful mountain from which is preached the message of salvation, a warning is issued here in Hebrews, and that warning is in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven first of all you have this warning when we're told to see to it and that's the emphasis there behold or look see to it it is it always signifies to beware to take heed to be careful about what is given in charge what is being said it's so easy for us to take those words, that that expression, look or behold, and to say, well, this is just the Bible trying to sound Bible-y. You know? So it's trying to sound like that, so every once in a while you throw in a behold, because it, it's, you're supposed to say behold every once in a while in the Bible, aren't you? Never, beloved, never look at it that way. The Holy Spirit is not in the business of... Throwing words in, in order to sound bible What he says, he's saying with purpose. And when we're told to look here, it is take heed, beware, be careful. Now, who is the speaker? Because you're, you're be careful that you don't refuse the one who is speaking. Well, who is speaking? Who is speaking from heaven? It is Jesus Christ himself. And he speaks to all through the gospel itself. You go back to the first chapter of this book of Hebrews and to the very first verse. And it says there, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the words of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he speaks from there through his gospel. Paul would testify to the Galatians saying this in Galatians chapter one, beginning in verse 11, he says, for I would have, you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel I'm preaching to you. Isn't the gospel of men. It's not something I, I got through study and learning. It's something that I received through the Lord Jesus Christ and I am now preaching to you. This message of salvation and redemption. And that's the message that's coming from heaven. Now what exactly is it to refuse him who speaks? Because that's what we're being cautioned about. Beware lest you refuse him who speaks. It's to pray or to beg against something. And this relates to what you read in verses 18 through 20. You remember those here again in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. That little phrase there, who begged that no further message be spoken to them, is the same idea behind this idea, beware that you do not refuse to hear Christ. Don't beg to say to him, don't speak to me. Don't tell me your message. I don't want to hear it. That's the refusing. They couldn't stand before that mountain to hear that of their violation of the law and the will of God. That the besmirching of his honor and glory would bring death. Hearing it, they would have cried out for mercy and redemption. But they begged to be spared even hearing it. They couldn't even stand to hear the words. And our first inclination would be to ask, well, who would beg not to hear the word of Jesus Christ? But sadly, they do, don't they? Some of you share your experiences with me sometimes. When you hear people say, people that you love, and people that are dear to you, when you hear them say, and it's heartbreaking when you hear it, oh, please don't tell me about your religion. I don't want to hear what Jesus has to say. Don't, I don't want to hear it. Please don't tell me. Please don't tell me about Jesus. I don't want to hear it. Or keep your religion to yourself. Believe what you want, but just don't talk about it. Don't make me have to listen to it. And tragically, those people who are saying that, they are the ones who are refusing to hear Christ who speaks from heaven through his gospel. That's what they're doing. And it's, it's tragic, but it's real and it still goes on. Now, what was the fate of the first years? Not once, but several times, the people at the foot of Mount Sinai pledged their willing obedience to the law. Now, think about the way this goes. Up in this mountain, this mountain is full of lightning and thunder and the very ground is trembling. And they're saying, we don't want to hear it. Whatever it is, we'll do it. Doesn't that betray disingenuousness right from the beginning? You know they're not going to because they don't even want to hear it. Don't tell us, we don't tell us, Moses, you find out what it is, and whatever it is, we'll do it. That's their, their answer. And they do it more than once. You look at Exodus chapter 24, verses three through eight. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, "All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do." And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. All these things that God had told him. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. (coughs) This is after they said, but we don't want to hear it from him. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. But in the end, they refused to hear or obey the Lord. And so we read in Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse 21. But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory, says the Lord, and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers." and none of those who despised me shall see it. Then down in verse 28 of chapter 14, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. They wouldn't hear the word of God, they didn't obey the word of God, and they ended up dying in the wilderness. They could not escape the truth of the word. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less, Hebrews says, shall we escape. If we reject him who warns from heaven, they wouldn't hear the word of God communicated to them through the law and through Moses on the earth. What will happen to those who will not hear Christ when he speaks from heaven through the gospel? They were dealt with those men and women exactly and thoroughly in God's justice. What's to be expected concerning those who turn away from and reject the grace and the love of God preached by the blood of Jesus Christ? As we've been dealing with on Sunday evenings, this Jesus is coming again to be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those, number one, who do not know God, and number two, on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, What's the nature of this warning? The nature, nature of the warning mentioned here is, is worth taking time to think about. Did you uh, ever see someone get an electrical shock? Uh, maybe they forgot to turn the power off and suddenly uh, they make a a grounded contact with a live wire. Did you ever see that happen? A spark flies, and uh, the person gets a jolt, and sometimes they don't get up, and sometimes, right away anyway, uh, sometimes they have to shake it off because they've gotten such a jolt. Um, Bonnie's mom was doing something once, and she got the floor and the room all wet, And she asked Bonnie to come over and turn on the lamp. Is that right? Bonnie turned on the lamp. Boom! And she was out on the ground, uh, unconscious from the shock that she got from doing that as the lamp grounded. Her mom was a little upset. If you've ever seen that... Let's just take that example. You're going to go home now and swab down the kitchen floor and put a lamp in the middle of it and plug it in and make sure there's a bare wire touching the water and go in there and turn the lamp on? You're going to do that? Just so you can have the experience? So you can see what happens? Certainly not. If you've ever seen someone suffer a shock, you're not inclined to go try it yourself. Because you know that it's not a good thing. (laughs) And so you're either going to stay away from it, or you're going to take all the measures that you can to protect yourself from the event. So seeing that smoking, quaking, thundering mountain, no one wanted to go near it. Seeing those who said that they would obey the law given there and then rejecting it, dying in the wilderness, would you want to live and die by the law? Is that the way you'd want to go? I mean, here's this example before you. This is the character of the law. It's it's awesome in its justice. It is thorough in its judgment. And its violation is death. And everyone who violated it died under it. And has died under it. And entered into eternal judgment. So do you want to live under the law? Or do you want to be warned? Because of the example that's before you. And you can go a step further than that. We'll come to that in just a moment. But the warning is there by the example. And that's the point here. And now, looking on the Son of God, enduring the outpouring of the just wrath of God on the behalf of sinners on the cross, seeing that justice and that judgment raining down on his own beloved Son, Promising that those who look to him will be forgiven all. Who in their right mind would say, none of that for me. No thanks. I'll take my own chances and bear the wrath myself. So you have these two examples. The mountain, right? <laughs> no one can even go near it. And Christ, suffering. Unbelievable agony on the cross. For sin, and who in their right mind would stand up and say, I don't want to hear those messages. I don't want to hear that. I'm just planning on doing this myself. I'm going to stand by the law, under the law, of myself, myself, and I'm going to endure whatever that justice is coming off of that mountain, whatever that is Jesus had to bear, I'm going to take care of myself. Who in their right mind would say that? And that's the problem with sin. It is insanity. It is not anything coming from a right mind. It's coming from a dark heart. Owen sums it up this way. The grace, goodness, and mercy of God will not be more illustrious and glorious to all eternity in the salvation of believers by Jesus Christ than his justice, holiness, and severity will be in the condemnation of the unbeliever. Rejecting, beloved, the mercy of God and Jesus Christ is to choose the wrath of God under the law. And the warning is clear. The law preaches this. Behold, the Lord says in Ezekiel 18.4, All souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. That's the message of the law. And if people are thinking to vindicate themselves under the law, listen to the blood of Abel. Which is the evidence of Cain's sin. And the evidence of our sin is there. And you can't just sweep it aside. You can't replace it with acts of virtue. Because you can't do acts of virtue when you're lost in your sins. And the Lord says, and his law says, the soul that sins will die. The gospel preaches the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this brings us to the end of the chapter. and So in verse 26 we read this. At that time in the time when Mount Sinai when the Lord was present on Mount Sinai At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, and we saw it there in in the prophecy of Haggai, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. When the law was given, it created a great commotion, as one commentator puts it, in the creation itself. When that law was given, it, it, the, the, the very creation re- responded to the giving of the law in the presence of the Lord. Deuteronomy 33.2, uh, Moses says, The Lord came, uh, came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from, from 10,000 of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Chapter 19 of Exodus, just before the law is given, verse 17, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because of the Lord and descended on it in fire, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Now that very, so there was this great commotion when the law was given. But there was a greater commotion yet to come. And that's what Haggai was talking about. Now, the very same voice, the voice of God, promised that there was coming a day when he would shake not only the earth, but the very heavens. And we read that together in the prophecy of Haggai a moment ago. And the great and profound character of that day began to be fulfilled at the incarnation of Jesus Christ right through his death and resurrection. You remember his death? What happened in Matthew 27, verses 45 through 51? Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. The very creation itself reacting to this offering being made on the cross. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to them to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was rent two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Yes, I'm going to shake the world. I'm going to shake it by my presence, and the presence that I bring with my law. But there's a coming, a greater shaking, and that shaking begins at the very incarnation of Christ, and is exhibited at the death of Christ, and it's exhibited again as resurrection. Remember, in Matthew 28, we're told that now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. Great commotion in the creation at the work of Christ. Christ. Calvin says this, If at the commencement of Christ's kingdom, not only the lower parts of the world were shaken, but his power also reached the heavens, the apostle justly concludes that the doctrine of the gospel is sublimer than that of the law and ought to be more distinctly heard by all creatures. Seeing this, it draws the attention of everyone. And, of course, all of this disruption and commotion in the creation will find its culmination at his second coming, where Peter tells us that the heavens are going to melt with a fervent heat. But we read of it in Revelation chapter 16, beginning in verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came in of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning rumblings, peals of thunder, and great earthquakes such as there had never been since man was on the earth, so great was the earthquake. And then comes the dissolution of the world as we know it, described by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. Christ, by his coming, retired all types and all shadows, beloved. At his second coming, all created things Subject to decay and to dissolution will end, but the kingdom of Christ has no end. There is no end to this that we are a part of through the Lord Jesus Christ. We haven't come to that that trembling mountain. We've come to the mountain where the festal angels sing and celebrate the grace of God, the love of God. At his second coming, everything that is earthly, everything that is physical, everything that is material will melt away. But we're not a part of such a kingdom. We're a part of an everlasting kingdom through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So may I challenge you today to take your thanksgiving this week beyond the blessings of family and friends and food. I'm not saying not to be thankful for those things. Be thankful for those. But go beyond that. And let your thanksgiving run out more fully. And let us do what we're told here at the end of Hebrews 12. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus... Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Beloved, it's important for us to do this for our own hearts, for our own souls, for our own well-being. It's important for us to do it for our families. For our families to see us giving thanks to God and giving thanks for things beyond the material, the material things are going to all be gone. We've been given something more than that. We've been given, given something that will last forever. And it is the part and place that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the capstone of our thanksgiving and our gratitude to God. That we're a part of such a thing. That we've come to such a place. We are to worship God acceptably. That is through Christ alone. We live in a day when people are trying to change the character and nature of this holiday to make it something that it's not. To be thankful for for something else other than God. Anything other than God. Make it your friend. Make it your dog. Make it your garden. Anything but God But we know that we are to render to him acceptable worship and we can do that only through Christ. Because we haven't come to that mountain that burns. We've come to the mountain where Christ stands in the foreground suffering and dying for our sins and giving us life through the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We're to come with reverence. Reverence demands that we worship God in the way that pleases him. Not that pleases you. That's the heart of reverence, beloved. And awe. And awe means that we come carefully, cautiously, thoughtfully, not haphazardly, not in a relaxed way, in a joyful way, in a loving way, in a thankful way. Yes, but carefully and thoughtfully. Be ever thankful, beloved, for the grace of God through Jesus Christ. For our God is a consuming fire. He is, just as we're told here. But you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him that is with Christ, having forgiven you all your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. And that's where our gratitude should find its place, before the cross and the grace and mercy that's been shown to us through Jesus Christ, and all that is now ours that can never be shaken, can never disappear, can never go away, can never be changed because it is grounded in the promise of God and sealed by the blood of his Son. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your grace and your mercy to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We say that, I say that so often, Lord. And yet I realize that I'm in danger of saying it without thinking about it as I ought to. We pray, Lord, that all of our worship of you this week will be acceptable, will be reverent, and, Lord, will be filled with awe. Who are we, Lord? Who are we to have the promise that when everything we know in this world is gone, we will stand with this great crowd of witnesses that are mentioned here in Hebrews 11 and 12, that we will stand where festal angels sing and celebrate. Who are we to hear that endless chant, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, we are nothing in ourselves, Lord, but we are everything in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with gratitude. And, oh Father, if there's anyone here who is defiantly saying, I don't want to hear that message, I don't want to hear who Christ is, I, I-, I want to stand before the mountain on my own, may they see, Lord, how pathetically hopeless. Such a stand is. And may they surrender their pride and their resistance, humble themselves, and come and find what can only be found in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, peace with you, the living God, and the hope of things that cannot be shaken. Lord, please have mercy. Please work, Lord. Please gather in, all your own. Thank you, Father, for hearing us this morning. Thank you for the beauty and power of your word. We thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.